0: luke chapter 2 verses 1 through 20 and i know you're going to find it helpful to have your own copy of scripture open and to be reading along with me this morning you'll find that on page 857 if you're using a copy of the church bible Uh, so i'd invite you to turn there with me as we look together at luke 2 1 through 20 and before we do look at god's word together preach let me pray for us Father in heaven, we do thank you that you have given us and perfectly crafted every word that you have spoken for the salvation and the sanctification of our souls. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that every uh, part of your scripture declares you to us. We thank you that it is your voice that we are longing to hear as of the voice of the great shepherd of the sheep, And so we pray, Lord, that you would speak this morning as your word is read and preached. We pray that you would make us attentive. We pray that you would make us humble. We pray that you would remove uh, hardness of heart and blindness of eyes from those who cannot hear and cannot see, and that you would enable all of us to see and to hear the wondrous mystery, the glory of the incarnation, and the great truths of the gospel. Our God, we pray that you would make our thoughts to be heavenward, even as you speak from heaven to us. And so, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, please bless the ministry of your word this morning. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Luke chapter 2, very well-known account. Uh, You've known this since you were a very little child, if you grew up in any proximity to the church. And here, Luke, the uh, great physician and Uh, armchair historian, as it were, gives us these words. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee to the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David Among those with whom he is pleased. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see the thing that has happened which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning the child, and all who heard it wondered. At what the shepherds told them, but Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen, as it had been told them. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God endures forever. Well, it is a common practice in our culture whenever uh, someone has given birth to send out birth announcements. Now they come out on Facebook or on text messages, and there is a standard way in which the birth of a child is announced. So-and-so was born at this time, in this place, and weighs this much, and we are rejoicing, and everyone is rejoicing with them, and everyone is glad that God has brought new life into this world. And there are these standard ways in which we all tend to to announce the birth of a child. Well, no differently, there was a standard way in which the birth of children were announced in uh, the days in which Christ came into this world. We saw last time we were together that there was the birth of John the Baptist and the family came and they wanted to name him and there was great joy and there was rejoicing and it was the typical way in which in Israel the birth of a child might be announced and, and might be attended upon with rejoicing from family members. But when we move out of the narrative focusing on John the Baptist, Jesus' forerunner, and we focus on now the birth of Jesus, the long-awaited Messiah, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, what is this birth announcement going to look like? Now, humanly speaking, if Jesus is who the Scripture says he is, if he is the infinite God, if he is the King of kings and the Lord of lords, you would think that his birth would be announced Uh, among the elite, among the powerful, among the great, among the mighty, among the movers and the shakers. You would think the normal expectation would be the greatest king who has ever come is here. And the whole of Israel is now to celebrate with us and the whole of the world is to rise up and celebrate with us. But nothing could be further from the truth. The birth announcement of Jesus is Completely contrary to everything that you might expect because the Redeemer is contrary to what anybody in this world might expect, which is why men won't go to him, but it's why sinners like us, who know that we are hopeless and helpless without him, will go to him. And everything about his birth announcement, very interesting, doesn't tell us what he looks like, doesn't tell us how big he is, tells us that he's born in a feeding trough, tells us he's born in lowly, humble, humiliating, abasing circumstances to filthy shepherds in a field, announced by the greatest of God's messengers to the most unlikely of people so that if you know that you're a sinner, you know that you can go to him. That's the the big point of what Luke is trying to capture in the birth announcement of Jesus. What we're going to see this morning first that uh, the, the period of Christ's birth is given by Luke, and then the setting of Christ's birth, and then the recipients of the announcement of his birth. Notice that famous phraseology, and if you were ever in a Christmas pageant, I always, I always feared uh, being in a Christmas pageant because I, I knew I might be one of those poor kids that had to memorize Uh, The first uh, seven verses of this passage and and if you ever in the 80s Maybe I'm getting old now. I think I am in the 80s That was like a big thing probably not if you were born in the 90s But if you were born in the 70s or 80s Christmas pageants were a big deal There were movies about it and this showed up in all of them in the days uh, In those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered This was the first registration yada 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 now If you're not a Christian you could be saying, why is this in your book that you claim God gave us? I mean, it sounds like a history lesson. Um, Now, if you are uh, theologically minded or if you've studied this at all, this section is actually fraught with difficulty. There have been many attempts, even by noted theologians, to say that it's historically inaccurate. Um, I don't think it is. I think that Luke is giving us a general historical framework. He's not trying to give us a very specific, this is what happened at this time. There are, there are theologians who say, you know, this couldn't have happened because when you look at the reign of Caesar Augustus, there is no worldwide taxation in any other literature that we have. Now, it's, it's possible that... Uh, Luke is just giving us a general sense that there were ongoing taxations. That was a thing. Powerful leaders, Roman rulers, wanted to show off their powers. You know, I've I've often found it interesting talking to all the different uh, military men in our church that whenever there is a new commanding officer, and especially if it's a general, uh, they've told me, you know, everything changes because this guy comes in. He's got to make his mark, he's got to make things more difficult, as it were. That's essentially what they're saying, just to prove that he's not the last guy. And in a very real sense, the Roman rulers who were ruling the known world at that time would do those things just to flex their political muscles. They would call for a worldwide census as worldwide in the sense in the greater Roman Empire, which was the known world. Don't think that people in remote islands were being called to come to Israel. That was the part for the whole. The known world is coming together, and there is a worldwide taxation. There is a worldwide registration that is uh, historically accurate in a general sense. And Luke is telling us in a very real sense this at this time, God was bringing his son into the world. Now, I don't think that the time of Christ's birth being put around that sort of uh, historical marker of um, taxation and, and uh, head counting, censoring, uh, is just to give us a historical time frame. Now, notice what Luke does with this section. It's actually marvelous. He takes... Everything that's going on, coming up to the birth of Christ, and he shows how God is weaving it all together to accomplish his purposes. God is the God of history. Here's the great news. There's nothing that happens in history that God isn't sovereign over. Nothing. God is sovereign over every single event in history, and he uses every single event in history to work out his plans for his church. God is superintending everything. Now, if that's not true, we should all just go and give up right now because there can be no hope. There can be no comfort. There can be no peace. There can be no contentment, knowing that God is working all things out for good for those that love him, who are called according to his purpose and no different if it's true for us and it is true for us so that when even the psalmist said that the mountain should fall into the sea, even if creation came unhinged, we have a God who is a strong rock and tower undergirding us. We will not fear. We have a God who has bound himself to us for all of eternity, who said, I will bring you to myself, I will preserve you, I will keep you, even if everything around us falls apart. Here, He is superintending this historical event in order to bring his son into the very place where the prophet said that Christ would be born. What is God doing? Why is there this, quote unquote, worldwide taxation censor? Why is there this great movement and all the people have to go back to their hometowns? It doesn't make sense. You You could take a head count. Uh, with Roman centurions, wherever the people happen to be. You could send out your, your officials and you could do the headcount and you could do the taxation wherever they are. But notice Luke tells us all went to be registered, each to his own town. Joseph went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem. Now, remember, one of the great prophecies of the coming Redeemer in the Old Testament Micah 5, 2, was that uh, you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are least among the cities in Judah, yet out of you shall come forth one who shall be ruler over my people, whose going forth is from everlasting. So the little town of Bethlehem would have a ruler, Micah said, in about 520 BC, he said this. God said, I'm going to send the everlasting king and ruler to the most unlikely, least expected, undeserving town that went by the name House of Bread, Bethlehem. Now remember, David had come out of Bethlehem. David had been a shepherd in Bethlehem. All of this is just going to weave together in this passage. David had been the great king of Israel. He had been the one God had anointed and given the covenant promises to and said, I'm going to give you a son and he's going to sit on your throne forever. He's talking about the the Redeemer, not all the other descendants that came from David. And and David becomes the great covenantal head and, and Bethlehem is the city of David and Bethlehem is renowned because the greatest king in Israel's history came out of it and now God's saying it wasn't about David, it's about the one coming to the city of David. It's about the one who is the son of David. It is about the one whose goings forth are from of old, even from everlasting. And notice that As Joseph now obeys and he goes back home and he is going to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, it is then, notice what Luke says, and while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. Now, Luke wants you to read this in such a way that you'll say, that seems really coincidental. (laughs) But Luke wants you to read that in such a way that you'll say, that's amazing, that God was using even the tyrannical uh, tyrannical law of Caesar Augustus and the other rulers with him in the Roman Empire, thinking they were showing their great and mighty power in order to fulfill all of his prophecies in bringing Christ out of Bethlehem. Um, It's amazing. It's absolutely amazing. You know... We're going to talk about joy and peace here in a minute because I think that is the the great overarching end goal of all of this for us. Um, What peace there is when we know no matter what anyone does to inconvenience us, to oppose us as Christians, to seek to do us harm, to mock us, to revile us, whatever. doesn't matter. They're all serving God's purposes. They're all just pawns, In God fulfilling his eternal plan. That's how the Bible paints it. Um, Nothing can stop God's purposes. That is the most comforting thought in the world. Um, It's comforting for me when I start to fear whatever it is. What if we don't have this? Or what if we run out of this? Or what if we don't get this? Or what if this happens? Or what if we lose the city center? What if we can't meet in here anymore? Who cares? God will provide. When we get our power hands on our lives, and we try to hold on to everything real tight, that's when there's no peace and joy. There's no peace and joy. When we try to secure our lives for ourselves, there's no peace. But here Luke is giving us this wonderful picture of why we can be at peace. God is working all things together according to the counsel of his will. God is the maker of heaven and earth. Now notice that um, the setting of Christ's birth is now set forth where he's born, not just in Bethlehem. That is obviously of prophetic importance that he is the one who came to fulfill everything that, that God had promised through Micah. But notice Notice that little detail, and we make such a big deal of it. Every Christmas, we have, our, we have our nativity scenes, we have our mangers, we have them on our fireplace mantles, we have them perhaps in our yards, cities have them out. We're obsessed with nativity scenes. And, and we're obsessed with this one section. Notice this, while they were there, the time for her to give birth, and she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no place for him at the inn. Now, Think with me for a moment, if you could detach yourself from our uh, current culture, that they didn't have hotels in Israel the way we think of hotels. Charles Spurgeon has a really interesting sociological observation on how we got our hotels. He said back then... um, in any given town or city, there would be one person who would be a- appointed to be an innkeeper. It would be as if we all lived in community and actually cared about each other. And and uh, in that community in which we cared about each other, we were like, you know what? <laughs> it's Rob and Michelle's turn <laughs> to be the innkeepers. And they're like, sign me up. We got a room. You can come and stay. And then the next year, there would be a different innkeeper. The next season, there would be a different innkeeper. And uh, what Spurgeon said is as time went on, as cultures become more and more selfish and more and more individualistic and less and less hospitable, you started to have formal sort of places where maybe one person uh, bought a home that was big enough for multiple travelers and they would then, that's the beginning of the hotels, Now now he says we just have these big buildings straight up and lots of people just cram in them and never talk to each other. Very interesting, isn't it? But here, Mary and Joseph are traveling, and uh, and the inn is a free place to lodge. And who needs to lodge more than this poor pagan? I'm sorry, this poor peasant. She was not a pagan. This poor peasant uh, virgin who is with child, who is about to give birth, and yet the inn is full. There's already people staying. The inns could only hold so many people, and apparently, there's a manger, a feeding trough, where filthy animals would eat their food. And the innkeeper told Mary and Joseph, you can stay um, out in the stable in the feeding trough. Um, I don't think we fully understand the implications of that theologically. Um, It's not so that we feel sorry for the baby Jesus and we have this sentimental Christmas time. Oh, isn't that sweet? Um, the fact that Jesus is uh, put in a feeding trough, and Spurgeon will say this uh, very clearly, he'll say, um, it's it's so that you know that you can approach him as a sinner. You know, he was called a friend of sinners during his ministry. Jesus was called a, a friend of tax collectors and sinners, and that meant that if you know you're a sinner, you know you could go to him, and he won't reject you. Because only sinners go to Jesus. People that think they're good enough go to hell. Sinners go to Jesus. People that know that they're hopeless and helpless go to Christ. And if Jesus had been born in a palace, Spurgeon says, you would be afraid to go to him and there would be guards keeping you from him. But he's born out in an animal feeding trough. He's laid in a manger. He's wrapped in poor swaddling clothes. He is for the poorest of the poor He is for the most outcast. He is for the needy. He is for the sick. He is for the weak. He's for those that know that they're not good enough. If you think you're good enough, you are going to perish forever. The second you breathe your last breath, you are going to perish. But if you know you can come to such a savior as Christ, who is born in those conditions, and that he said, the one that comes to me, I will never cast out, and you flee to him, you can have the fullest assurance that he will receive you. Uh, uh, John Calvin, reflecting on this, has the most wonderful thought. He says, When the Son of God was thrown into a stable and placed in a manger, lodging refused him among men. It was that heaven might be open to us. Isn't that awesome? When the inn was shut to him, heaven was open to us. When the inn was shut, heaven was open. And Calvin says, not as a temporary lodging, but as our eternal country and inheritance that angels might receive us into their abode wow how can you hate john calvin that's awesome that is awesome when he was locked out of the inn heaven was open so that if you go to christ you have your hearts assured that you're forgiven the one who laid in the manger would hang on the cross the one who was wrapped in swaddling clothes as an infant was wrapped in linen in the tomb he finished the work of redemption, he opened God's heavenly home, and just like he stayed in that manger for nothing, and it was as it were him being laid out to whoever wants to take the savior free of charge, salvation is free to anyone who comes to Christ by grace. It's it is astonishing what is actually crammed in to the biblical truth about Jesus being laid in a manger. It's astonishing. Here is the Redeemer of the world. Here's the one who even now sits on the throne of the Father, who rules and reigns, who keeps this whole planet going, who gives you life and breath in all things, who makes your heart beat, who holds all your ways in his hands and and calculates the dust of the earth in a measure, who knows all the stars by name and calls them out, Isaiah says, so that not one of them is missing, who, who upholds every molecule by the word of his power, and he's laid in a manger in a feeding trough. There's no dignity, there's no respect, there's no clout, there's no there's no wealth, there's no, there's no rich people running to him. there's no noble people, there's no famous people going to him. You know, I, I have been struck afresh with how absolutely wickedly fickle we are that we give all the honor and the dignity to the rich and the powerful and the famous and the wealthy and the gifted. And, and even we who are Christians. And here is the most wealthy, the most powerful. The most noble, the most famous individual in all of reality. And there's nobody there. And he's in a feeding trough. You know, Isaiah, when he spoke of Christ coming in that great suffering servant um, prophecy in Isaiah 53 says that he is despised and rejected. When we see him, there is no there's no beauty that we should desire him. There is no pomp. You know, I, I one of the things that nauseates me the most is seeing the way um, uh, people make a big deal about Beyonce's baby. I mean, give me a break, really. Like, if you care about Beyonce's baby, come and talk to me afterwards. We'll we'll have a we'll have a heart to heart pastoral moment. Who cares? Who cares? Here's the the baby of. Uh, redemption here is the christ of heaven here is the son of god here is the greatest being ever and nobody cares nobody cares there's no form there's no beauty that we should desire him he is despised and rejected of men he's a man of sorrows he's acquainted with grief we hid as it were our faces from him he was despised and we did not esteem him yet surely he has borne our griefs he has carried our sorrows He was stricken by God and afflicted. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement that brings us peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. From his birth to his burial, Jesus was despised and rejected. And yet notice, thirdly, there is this marvelous birth announcement that that accompanies this birth. You know, it's one of those really interesting things You're reading this, and the flow of it doesn't seem to make sense. You would think, okay, here's the long way to Redeemer. Where are all the religious leaders? Where are all the famous people? Where are all the politicians? Where are all the movers and the shakers who are controlling the world and setting the agenda and controlling media? Where are they? They're not there. But you know who's there? Some stinky, filthy shepherds. Out in the field, keeping watch over the flock by night. They're going to be sore amazed, In the King James language, they're going to be so amazed it hurt. Just kidding. (laughs) They were going to be sore amazed when these angels appear. And of all the people that get to hear about this birth and what has just happened, it is the most unlikely, unexpected, undignified, unworthy. um, I'm trying to think of more ums, uns. Unpopular. We could just go on with uns. Um. There is nothing about these shepherds that makes them in themselves worthy recipients of the announcement of the greatest thing that has ever happened in human history. And yet, notice, Luke tells us, they're nearby. Notice, in the same region, verse 8, there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. They're doing what God has called them to do. They are, they are in this culture and in all cultures of Israel's history that shepherds were not, that was not a lucrative uh career you know there there was no there was no padding your resume for shepherds because <laughs> if you do good guess what you get to keep being a shepherd <laughs> there's no chain of command there's no raises there's no clout right if you're a shepherd you're a shepherd your kid's going to be a shepherd you're just going to go on taking care of stinky sheep and uh by the way sheep bite and that's all they do. <laughs> sheep, just, sheep just stink and wander and bite and, and take care of themselves, and uh, it's not a lucrative or a dignified position. And yet notice verse 9, Luke tells us, an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them. Now, this is absolutely astonishing. If you could think of being out in a field at night and seeing, you know, what would be millions or trillions, who knows, of stars. No city lights, no electricity, and they're out in a field by night, and suddenly one of the glorious messengers of God appears. Not one of these dumb, precious, memory angels. That's not an angel. But this massively frightening being shows up in the sky, and God's glory surrounds them. Now, I'd be freaked out. They were freaked out. Notice that Luke tells us uh, they were filled with fear. Now, one of, the, um, one of the things I think we need to grapple with here is everything about this, this passage is going to be, here's how to have incredibly great joy. Here's how to have uh, unbelievable peace. That's, here's here's the, the fruit of all of this. Here's, here's the so what for you. If you come to Christ or if you're in Christ. And yet the first thing that the shepherds experience is fear. Now, I think that's because everywhere in the Bible, God's grace cannot be appreciated until our sin is recognized. His undeserved favor cannot be Uh, rejoiced in and received and welcomed until we first fear and tremble before him over our sins. We are never going to love the gospel and what Christ has done until we first hate our own sin. That's, That's the biblical paradigm. No one loves Jesus until they fear because of their guilt and because of their sinfulness before God. And then he takes that fear and he turns it into great joy and peace. So you can't bypass that. Uh, if, you're, if you're someone who has never um, been in the presence of God as a sinner, then, then you don't know what that's like. To be in the presence of God and to recognize your sinfulness is a very terrible thing and a very necessary thing. It's a very necessary thing. Most The better part of mankind is just skipping through the world, trying to forget about their wickedness. Trying to just do whatever, yoga, whatever, to get over their fears, whatever. And And yet the Bible summons us into the presence of the infinite God and into the majesty and glory of God in the face of Jesus. And it's proper that the first response we have is fear. Remember when Peter, Simon Peter, was with Jesus, and he first began to realize who Jesus was. Jesus had given him that great catch of fish, and remember... Uh, I think it's in Luke chapter 4. We're going to come up on it here soon. And, and, uh, and Peter didn't yet know who Jesus was in his, in his divine majesty. And, and Jesus does this little miracle where Peter hadn't caught anything, and he's like, well, throw the net over on the other side, and you'll get a great catch. And he did, and they couldn't even pull it up. And the net was breaking. And Peter fell down, and he said, Depart from me, O Lord, for I am a sinful man. Um, there may have been an element of pride in Peter at that point, but there's also, it seems, an element of appropriateness, that when we, we realize who Jesus is, when we realize who God is, when we realize that Jesus is God, when we realize the divine majesty, we should feel undone inside. I should feel undone. I should not feel like I can walk into the presence of God unscathed. I have a friend who wrote the most profound thought the day of the eclipse. He said, if the sun from 92 million miles away can burn your retinas, why in the world would we think that we could casually walk into the presence of its creator? Wow. 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 The sun can burn your retinas from 92 million miles away, but we think we can walk up to God like it's some sort of cheap thing? And... And notice that Luke tells us they were filled with fear. But notice verse 10, the angel said to them, do not fear. Now, there's this beautiful picture. Remember in the book of Revelation when John is on the island of Patmos and he sees the heavens open and he sees that glorious heavenly vision and um, says, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and the heavens were open and I heard the voice voice of one who sat on the throne as the sound of many waters, and, and um, he said, I fell down at his feet as if I was dead. So the Apostle John experienced the same thing as Peter, the same thing as these shepherds. And he says, and, and the one who sat on the throne, who is Christ, came and he put his right hand on me and he said, do not be afraid, I am the Alpha and the Omega, I am the beginning and the end. And so once we've actually come to terms with who we are, and we've fallen down before him. You know what Jesus does 100 out of 100 times? So, like, if you've never done this, he's never done this back to you. If you've never fallen down before Jesus, he does not say, Don't be afraid. He doesn't say it. But anytime anyone falls down before Jesus, filled with great fear and awe and trembling, a 100 out of 100 times, Jesus says, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the Alpha and the Omega. I am the one who was alive and who died and yet who lives forevermore. And I have died for you, and I have shed my blood to make you a kingdom of priests, kings and priests unto my God. I have loved you with an everlasting love. It is only those who fall down and tremble before the Lord and cry out to him for mercy who experience that very thing in their souls. And notice these shepherds, filled with fear, fall down. The angel of the Lord comes and says, Do not be afraid, behold, I bring you good news of great joy that shall be for all people. Whenever God sends his word out, this is very important. Please get this this morning. Whenever God sends his word out, his end goal for his people is to settle their hearts, to quiet their consciences in the knowledge of what they have in Christ and the peace and the joy that is theirs in Jesus. Every word he speaks, including every warning in the Bible, every threat, every severe word, every promise, every sweet word, every comforting word. The only reason God sends his word out, and it only comes from the scriptures, whenever God's word goes out, especially in the preaching of the word, God is saying, I want you to know my peace. And here's the way to know my peace. Notice the message. The angels say to them, fear not, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Now, and this is the formal birth announcement. These shepherds are the only ones uh, that get the postcard And, and everything on the postcard. These angels come and they say, here's your overnight print. Jesus is born. He's the Savior, city of David, Christ the Lord. Here's how you're going to know it. He's wrapped in swaddling clothes in a manger. Rejoice. Now, Luke doesn't say this, but obviously... obviously it's going to take faith on the part of these shepherds to believe what they're hearing now you may say well if i saw an angel from heaven and then all of a sudden notice luke says suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising god and crying out glory to god in the highest and on earth peace among men of goodwill um you'd say oh i'd believe yeah if an angel if i see an angel i'll believe no you wouldn't no jesus said even if somebody rose from the dead and you saw them you wouldn't believe jesus said you have moses and the prophets Even if one rises from the dead, you will not believe. Lots of people saw Jesus' miracles and cried out, crucify him, crucify him. So that doesn't make us believe. The shepherds need to believe this word. And and really, they have very little to go on. These angels are functionally preachers proclaiming to them um, what has happened and what's been fulfilled and what God has done. And, And, you know, it's interesting. In the birth announcement, you would expect... It is to say, Mary and Joseph want everybody to know that they have had a baby boy and mother and child are happy. They would, you would expect something like that. But notice the language of the birth announcement. The angel says, fear not, I bring you good news of a great joy that will be for all the people. This is absolutely amazing, by the way. It's the only birth announcement ever in human history where it said this is for everybody. Notice notice what, what they say. Notice verse 11. These are some of the most significant words in the Bible. Look at verse 11. For unto you has been born. Unto you. Now, we are supposed to hear that and hear the angels saying, this child is yours. He is for you, for unto you has been born in the city of David. This word to these shepherds, imagine the confusion they could have felt. For unto us has been born a child, and and this child is for us. This birth announcement is our birth announcement, because this Redeemer is for all people. He is, he is the Redeemer for you. You know, uh, Martin Luther used to say that, all of Christianity is bound up in the first personal pronoun. If, if we cannot say, the Son of God loved me and gave himself for me, then we are not Christians. A Christian is someone who says, the Son of God loved me and gave himself for me. Not, the Son of God loved everybody and died to save everybody. That's not, that's not where Christianity lies. The Son of God loved me. The life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me. And gave himself for me. And here the angel is, in a sense, pressing in this announcement that very truth onto the shepherds and saying, he is for you. Will you take him to be your child? Here is this child for you. He is the only Savior. He is the Savior. And, and the greatness of their faith, and I want to point this out this morning, the greatness of the faith of the shepherds is seen in the fact that they have almost nothing to go on to know this is true. They're out in a field. They no doubt know that God has promised the Christ to come into the world for thousands of generations, right? We know that. But then they say, okay, here's the sign. Here's how you're going to know when you have seen the child. He's going to be wrapped in poor clothing, and he's going to be in a smelly feeding trough for animals. That's, That's not a sign, by the way. You do know that, right? A sign is his face is going to be glowing with a halo like a medieval painting. (laughs) No, Mary's got the baby and the halo's around the baby of Jesus. That's the sign people want. The sign they get is you're going to have to believe in this despised, poor, rejected redeemer if you're going to be a Christian. You have to believe in that Savior. Here's how you're going to know who he is. He's lying in a manger and notice they obey and they go. Notice what they say in verse 15. Let us go over to Bethlehem. Now, I think these shepherds go because they've heard there is one who has come into the world and who can give exceeding great joy and exceeding great peace. Um, I'll be 40 this year and... I have thought a lot as I get older um, that my greatest need is joy and peace. It's not popularity, it's not success, it's not money, it's not more sort of travel experience. I've had a lot of travel experience, eaten at a lot of nice restaurants. That is not my great need in life. That is not my great need. Joy and peace, real gospel-driven joy real gospel peace in my soul and I know that that's your greatest need I don't need to know anything about you I know that that's your greatest need and I know that that was the shepherd's greatest need and I know that those shepherds realized that's what they needed and you know what they said let us go and see him let us go to him They encouraged each other. They went together. They collectively went. They found Mary and Joseph. They told them everything about the child. Everybody wondered about what these shepherds said. Now, there's so much more we could say about this. Um, These shepherds, though, are a model for us. You know, if if we are ever going to come to Christ, and John Calvin has this other great meditation on this, he says, uh, let us never despise, never, let us never despise those God has chosen to instruct us about Christ, even if they've come from the dung of cattle. He's talking about the shepherds. God chose men that hang out with uh, cow dung to instruct you about the Redeemer so that you would go to him and realize that he receives you. It doesn't matter how wicked you are, how vile you are. It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter. It does not matter. You could be living in the most filthy uh, inner rebellion. And only you and Jesus know about that. And if you go to him and you confess your sins and you take him as your savior, there is joy and there is peace. There's assurance. This is the 500th year of the Reformation. And uh, I don't know if you know this, but the great conflict between Rome and Protestantism and the Reformed Church specifically was over the doctrine of the assurance of salvation. Rome and Cardinal Bellarmine was the great apologist for the Roman Catholic Church in the days of the Reformation, said that the greatest of all the Protestant heresies was that you could have assurance of salvation. Um, And yet when we go to the Bible— And we hear the proclamation that there's great joy and great peace for you today because there's a Savior born. And and they go to him, and they know that joy, and they know that peace, and they have their hearts assured. God is saying, here is the assurance of salvation. It is in Christ. Now, if you are one who is laboring under the guilt of your sin, under the weight of your sin, having assurance shaken, and yes, we can have our assurance shaken, we come back and we say, in that manger in Bethlehem today, that day, was born for me a savior and I am going to him and I have trusted in him. And I know that all the peace and joy I need, the acceptance with God, the pardon of my sins, the blessings of redemption and the hope of everlasting life are mine if I have gone to him. Um, You know, you will never, you will never have a greater need than that in life. That's it. Greatest need we have is to know that we have eternal life and that life is in God's Son and it's full and it's free and he is the most approachable person in the universe. Isn't that amazing? The most powerful person in the universe is the most approachable person in the universe. i want to close this morning just by asking you, are you going to him? Um, on your day in and day out affairs, are you going to Christ? Are you trusting in him? Are you seeking joy and peace in him? Or are you seeking it in a million other things that will never pay off the way you think they will? Um, There can be no true joy, no true peace, no true contentment. Um, If you're going to Christ, I want to hold him forth for you this morning. And if you're struggling with assurance of salvation, I want to say, you know, Jesus reminds us... um, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will never cast out. Martin Luther said, go ahead and jump in that filthy manger. He said, Jesus was born in the manger so you could jump in the filthy animal trough with him, and you could hold on to him as the redeemer for dear life. Jesus says, come to me, without money, without price, if you come to me, I'll never cast you out. I'll raise you up on the last day. That is, a, that is a guaranteed word of joy and peace for those who are trusting in Jesus Christ. Let him who has ears to hear this morning, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church. Let me pray for us. Father, we do come to you this morning thankful for these things and that you have given us a Savior, a child who was born in Bethlehem. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that you are the only Redeemer. We thank you that you are still the same yesterday, today, and forever, and that just as we could have come to you as the shepherds did at your birth, we can come to you now as you are reigning and ruling in heaven. We thank you that you've given us boldness and access to the throne of grace by your Spirit. We thank you that you have said, the one that comes to me I will never cast out, We pray that you would give joy and peace to each and every one of your people who are present here this morning. We pray for those that have never come to you, that, Lord, you would cut them to the heart, that they might first know the guilt of their sin and that they might then know the joy and peace that is found in you. Lord, we pray that you would do great and mighty things in us, even as we have heard you this morning. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.